Please be seated. Good morning. If you've got your Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 has been a very long week for me, so as you can probably tell, I'm losing my voice. So if you think about it, pray for me. And if I don't sound very excited, I assure you that I am. This is a wonderful passage for us this morning, but if I get too excited, I might start coughing, and then we'll be in trouble. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the words up on the screen on either side of me. We're in Matthew 26, and I'm going to read from verses 17 uh, all the way through verse 56. I'm sorry, not 17, 31. Told you, it's a long week. We're going to start in verse 31. Okay. Verse 31, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? 
Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. When I was in the second grade, we had to take a big standardized test. And it was a really big deal. It was the first time I ever had to take a test like this. All of the teachers were uh, working very hard to make sure that we were all prepared to take it. And I was super nervous about it. So I'm like eight years old. The day of the test comes, sit down, fill in the bubbles on the Scantron, you know, the answer sheets. And, um, and when it was all said and done, I actually felt really good about it. I didn't feel like there were many questions that I didn't think I knew the answers to. Then a few days later, my mom gets the scores back from our teacher, and she has to tell me the bad news that I failed the test. And not not just failed it a little bit, I bombed it. But what had happened was when I was filling in those bubbles, I got off track by one number. So even though I might have known the right answers, I was wrong from the get-go. And this was like a practice test. This wasn't even like a real one. It did not matter. They were not gonna make me retake the second grade because I failed this test. But failing cut right to the heart of my little eight-year-old idols because I just wanted success and approval. And those of you that live with me or work with me know, yeah, not much has changed since you were eight years old that I am still probably just working out all of the ways that I got messed up when I failed that test when I was eight. But that was the first time I can really remember failing at something. It was the first time, but it was certainly not the last time. Because failure is something that we have all experienced, isn't it? And And I'm not talking about like failing a standardized test. I'm talking about failures that are actually devastating. We fail to come through for the people who are counting on us. We fail to step up when we know what needs to be done. Worst of all, we fail to obey God and we give in to sin again, even though we swore this time it would be different, even though we promised it would not happen, we fail. I know sometimes it just feels like all we do is fail. But what we do and where we go with our failures is one of the most telling things about us because it says everything about what we believe about Jesus Christ and about the gospel. Because there there are all kinds of wrong ways that we can respond to failures, aren't there? We can be tempted to just give up, throw in the towel, despair. We can be tempted to just try even harder in our own effort We can get angry and lash out at other people for something that's really our fault. But this passage teaches us the better way, the only way. This passage teaches us that where we have failed, Christ has been faithful. And by his faithfulness, not only are we forgiven, but we are also able to then fulfill God's calling in our lives. 
That's the main idea of this passage. Let me say it again. Where we have failed, Christ has been faithful. And through his faithfulness, not only are we forgiven, but we are now able to fulfill the Lord's calling in our lives. And that's good news. Maybe to simplify that a bit more this morning, this is a long passage. I, I want to just look at three major themes or big ideas that kind of run through this whole passage. Okay, so this will be your outline this morning. Just three kind of big ideas that we see in this passage. And those are failure, faithfulness, and fulfillment. Let's start with that first one, failure. I think this is the, the most easily discernible theme in this passage. Our, our passage is literally bookended with failure, isn't it? You look at verse 31, Jesus tells the disciples a prediction or, or a kind of prophecy of what's about to happen. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. You're all going to fail me. You're all going to leave me. You're going to abandon me. And then you skip all the way to the end, verse 56, what happens? Then all the disciples left Jesus and fled. And everything in between. There's just more and more failure. The disciples' failure is made all the more striking because of how they first responded to Jesus when he said, you're going to fail me. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, you're all going to fall away from me tonight. And then verse 33, Peter says to Jesus, though they all fall away because of you. So he's speaking of the other disciples. Way to go, Peter. Though they all fall away, I will never fall away. I'm your guy, Jesus. You can count on me. They, these, these guys may, may not stick with you, but I'm a friend through and through. What's Jesus telling in verse 34? Peter, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And of course, that's exactly what happens. We'll see that in a few weeks. But then in verse 35, I love it. Peter doubles down. He says, no, Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then look at how 35 ends. And all the disciples said the same. No, Jesus, we are with you. Even if it means we have to be killed, we will not fail you. Have you ever given someone your word? Made a promise that you were going to do something? And then you don't keep it? Isn't that the worst? Because it's really like you failed twice. You did the thing you said you wouldn't do, and then you broke your word. That's what the disciples have done. But, but it gets worse. Their disciple, or the, the disciples' failure is, is even more on display in the next scene. In verse 36, Jesus takes the disciples to a garden that's on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. And it says they go to a place called Gethsemane, which is an Aramaic word that means oil press. So you can imagine this is maybe like an olive orchard where they would press oil. And in the book of John, it says this is the place that Jesus used to go often with his disciples. They go to Gethsemane, and Jesus says to the disciples, I need to pray. Right? We know that Jesus knows that this is the night that he's going to be betrayed. He knows what's about to happen to him in just a few hours, and so he wants to go talk to his father about it. And so he takes his three closest friends, Peter and James and John, and he says, guys, I have to pray to my father. Would you please wait here and pray with me? And I'm just going to go over here and I'm going to pray. 
And then he comes back to the disciples, and what happens? They've fallen asleep. What does Jesus say to Peter, verse 40? Could you not watch with me one hour? Weren't you the one who just said you'd stand with me even to the point of death? And you can't even stay awake. Peter, this is not looking good for you. Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Peter is being tempted and he's failing. Jesus leaves them right there. He goes back, he prays some more and then he comes back and what happens? They're asleep again. He says, guys, come on. He goes back over one more time to pray and he comes back. They're asleep again. Verse 45, he says, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. They have failed him. Well, we could just keep on going, finding examples in this, couldn't we? Judas, who betrays Jesus with a kiss, he's a failure. He sold out his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. We saw that last week. The Jewish leaders who come to arrest Jesus, they're failures. They didn't recognize their own Messiah when he was standing right there in front of them. And then near the end of our passage, when when this crowd of soldiers comes to arrest Jesus, Jesus, we see yet another kind of failure when one of the disciples draws a sword and and tries to fight them off. Matthew doesn't tell us this. I think Matthew's being nice to Peter because he's already not looking good. But the other gospels have no problem selling out Peter, maybe because he was saying, hey, these guys, you know. But we know from the other gospels that this was Peter who cut off this man's ear, who tried to fight because he failed to understand the nature of Christ's kingdom. Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. John's gospel also tells us that Jesus healed this guy's ear, so don't worry, he's okay. But Peter failed. And James failed. And John failed. And Judas failed. And the leaders failed. Everyone is failing. And it's not just the bad guys. It's even the guys that you would think would be the heroes of the story, Christ's very own apostles. But they fail. And that's the point. That's what this passage is, is trying to show us, is that everyone fails. No one here is good enough. No one passes the test. Look back up at verse 41. This is what Jesus says to Peter after he's found him sleeping. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think that is a key verse in this passage. It's an important theological truth that Jesus is teaching us here. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What does that mean? 
Now to be clear, Jesus is not teaching some kind of dualism by saying this. It's, this isn't Gnosticism, like he's saying that, that the spirit is good and, and the flesh is bad and, and that they're opposed to each other. That's, that's not what he's getting at. What he's describing is this experience of our inward selves, what's inside, our, our hearts or our minds or what you could call our soul, the place where we will things, the place where we desire things, the place where our conscience resides, what, what is inside of us. This experience of, of feeling and knowing what is the right thing to do, even what it is that you really want to do, that we've had that experience that our spirit, what's on the inside, wants to do the right thing, but then the terrible reality of the exact opposite happening in our bodies. That even though part of us wants to obey, all we keep on doing is failing. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. I think the Apostle Paul is describing this exact same reality in Romans chapter seven. Do you remember Romans seven? Let me read this for you. There, Paul says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. He says, I see in my members, in my body, Another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you think Peter could relate to that feeling? Wanting so hard to do the right thing and yet failing. Can you relate to that feeling? What's wrong with me? Why does this keep happening? Maybe you're feeling that way this morning. Because something happened this week. Something happened last night. Something happened this morning. But you are so aware of the weakness of your flesh. If you feel that way, I want you to see that you're not alone. One of the things that this passage is showing all of us is that we are no different than the disciples. Our flesh is weak, just like theirs is, which is to say that all of us have a a fallen, sinful nature that we inherited from the fall in the Garden of Eden. And that means that, that There is something fundamentally wrong with us, isn't there? That there is a war waging within us, and this is why we fail. Because our flesh is weak. And the truth of this passage is that as long as we are acting in our flesh, we are going to continue to fail. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's what Josh just read for us from Romans chapter eight. You cannot please God in your flesh. So, so what you need is not more effort. It's not a change of environment. It's not more coping mechanisms. That's not gonna do it because if you are acting in your flesh, you will fail. We don't need more effort. We need someone to save us. That's what Paul says in Romans eight. Wretched man that I am, 
who will save me from this body of death? Well, we'll find out in this next point. Point number two is faithfulness. Faithfulness. So in this passage that is just riddled with failure, there's one obvious exception, isn't there? Who is it? Come on, Sunday school. Jesus. Jesus. Everybody else is failing, but not Jesus. And that's the point. In fact, that's not just the point of this passage. That's the point of the whole Bible, isn't it? You go back all the way to Genesis 3. From there on, what is the story of the Bible? But just one man or woman failing after another. The whole story of the Bible proves that the flesh is weak. Everyone fails until we get to Jesus. And Jesus, over and over and over again, throughout all of the Gospels, and even in this passage, is the perfect display of faithfulness. Not only does Jesus know what the right thing to do is, not only does he desire to do the right thing, but he alone, of any man who has ever lived, is actually able to do the right thing. That's a beautiful reality of the incarnation. That Christ's inward man and his outward man are perfectly aligned. He's perfectly faithful. And it's that contrast that this passage is trying to highlight for us. Everyone fails except Jesus. Just consider how he prays in the garden. It says multiple times that he is in great sorrow and agony. That Jesus is troubled. He is overwhelmed with a sense of dread and distress. And it's important to know that this isn't sinful sadness. This isn't a doubtful kind of fear. This is right. This is reasonable. This is proportionate to what's about to happen to him, which Jesus knows all about. Jesus knows that in just a few hours, not only will he be arrested and then forced through this sham trial, but then he is going to be beaten and tortured and mocked. And then ultimately, they're going to strip him naked and hang him on a tree to be exposed and to die the death of a criminal. And what I assure you is one of the most gruesome methods of torture that has ever been devised by sinful human beings. Death on a cross. Jesus knows that that's coming. And he also knows that that's not even the worst part of it. Far from it. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Why does he call it a cup? That could just be metaphoric language for saying something really bad that he's going to have to endure. But, but if you're familiar with the Bible, you recognize that language right away, don't you? This is Old Testament language from the prophets where time and time again, the prophets of Israel use this idea of the cup as a metaphor to talk about God's omnipotent, righteous, terrifying wrath that he is going to make sinners drink. 
Listen to this from Isaiah 51. It says, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 25, God says to Jeremiah, take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and make all of the nations to whom I am sending you drink from it. The New Testament actually picks up this language in Revelation 14. This is John speaking to all the the wicked who, who finally oppose Christ and his people. In Revelation 14, verse 10, it says, They also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And what's going to happen? And they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. That is horrible. That is the cup of God's wrath that all of those who are opposed to him will drink. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you know you're not a Christian, that is the cup that the Lord is mixing for you right now. This is the cup that everyone who dies in their sins will have to drink, and it lasts forever. And that's not me being mean saying that. That is God saying that. Take heed. Listen. There is a cup, the cup of God's wrath, his eternal judgment. And it's the same cup that Jesus knows he's about to drink. Let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way. But there isn't. The disciples were afraid when they saw guys coming with clubs and swords. And they fled. How much more reason does Jesus have to be afraid? He is looking down the barrel of God's eternal wrath. But what does he do with that fear and distress? Does he run away? No. He doesn't even fight. This is important. Look at verse 53. When Peter tries to fight the guy with the sword, Jesus stops him and says, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could ask my father and he'd send a whole army of angels to fight to protect me? I could fight this. But I won't, because me fighting this would not be my Father's will. Jesus didn't fight. He didn't flee. Instead, he acted in faith. He prayed. He entrusted himself entirely to the good and perfect will of his God and Father in heaven. And isn't that what faithfulness is? Isn't that the heart of faithfulness? When we give in to sin, when we fail, what are we saying? We are saying to God, not your will, but my will be done every time you sin. So you sinning is not a mistake. It's not a lapse in judgment. It is treason. It is that serious. It deserves the cup. And yet Jesus prays to his Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What a beautiful word, nevertheless. 
Father, I know what's coming. I know what this is going to feel like. I know what this is going to look like. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Father, I know how bad this is going to be to be separated from you in a way that I've never been in since eternity past. I know what this will mean for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was faithful. In fact, in verse 44, it says he prayed the very same words three times. Did you see that? Do you see what Matthew's doing? It's a contrast to Peter. Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Three times Peter will let his fear lead to failure and forsaking his Lord. And yet three times Christ will take his fear to his Father and walk in faithfulness to God's will and not to his own. Peter failed, but Christ was faithful. And not just Peter. It's kind of cool. I think you can step back and, and you can see that Peter and Jesus are both kinds of Adam in this story. Where are they? They're in a garden. What's happening? They're being tempted. And Peter, just like his forefather, our first father, Adam, he fails. He gives in to the temptation. He chooses to do his own will over the Father's will. But then Jesus, the true and better Adam, the last Adam, he's faithful. He's tempted in the garden and he prays, not my will, but your will be done. What if Adam had prayed that prayer? Adam didn't. But Jesus did. Jesus was Faithful. Jesus succeeded in every way that Adam failed. And Jesus succeeded in every way that Peter failed. And you know what we can do with that? We can just assume that Jesus succeeded for everybody in between, all the way from Adam right up to Peter. All those failures in the Old Testament. Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, they all failed. But Christ succeeded. And not just up to Peter, but everybody after Peter. Everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, he has succeeded where we have failed. He was faithful. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. That's Hebrews 4.14. So Jesus was faithful, but he still drank the cup. I want you to really think about that. If anyone deserved not to drink the cup. Who was it? Who's the cup for? It's for the failures. It's for the ones who say, not God's will, but my will be done. It's, it's for the people who choose their comfort. It's for the people who choose their self-interest. It's for the people who choose their own way. We should be the ones that drink the cup, not Jesus. He was perfectly faithful. Nevertheless, he drank the cup. Why? For you. God the Son came down from heaven, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life so that in his flesh he could put to death the power of sin. So that he could be the perfect substitute for you so that he could drink 
up the cup of God's wrath on your behalf so that he could undergo the punishment that you deserve for your treason, also that your sins would be atoned for so that you could be forgiven. It was because of our failure that Christ was faithful. And it is because of his faithfulness that you are forgiven. Amen. Do you feel like a failure today? Do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you feel the shame for what you've done? Do you appreciate the weight of your treason against your Father in heaven? Jesus prayed that nevertheless for you. And this was all according to plan. So that brings us to this last point. Fulfillment. So right out the gates in verse 31, Jesus says to the disciples that they're going to flee, they're going to fall away, but that 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 will be a fulfillment of a prophecy from the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 13. That's why he says, because it is written, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's from Zechariah. And, And what's the striking the shepherd? That's obviously him drinking the cup, isn't it? That's him dying on the cross. And there's some neat connections here in Matthew. You could go back to Matthew 25 where Jesus calls himself the shepherd that's gonna judge the sheep and the goats. Or of course, we can think of John 10. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But Jesus quotes Zechariah here to predict the disciples' failure. And then, of course, the story ends with that prediction coming true. So by the end of the story, get this, we have both Zechariah's prophecy being fulfilled and Christ's prophecy being fulfilled. Judas is the same thing. Judas' betrayal is both a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You can think of Psalm 41, verse 9, and it was also a fulfillment of Christ's own prediction that we saw last week. I just think there's something really amazing here about what this is saying about Jesus and his relationship to Scripture, or even the God who writes Scripture. But there's more fulfillment in this passage. In verse 34, Christ predicts Peter's threefold denial, like we said, and we know that that will be fulfilled. And then just listen to how this passage ends, starting in verse 53. Again, he says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? And then in verse 55, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. Fulfillment, it runs through the whole Bible, or through this whole passage. Jesus is just hammering home This point, and it's the same one that Matthew has been making through the whole gospel account. Everything in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, it is the fulfillment of everything that God promised in the Old Testament. And that should just stagger us. Even something so seemingly at odds with God's purposes as the death of his Messiah. When we take the whole scriptures in view, we see that was actually the plan that God had worked out in eternity past. It wasn't an accident. It was predicted And it was worked out meticulously so that it is happening at the exact hour that God planned. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. Isn't that what this is? He fulfills the law of God by keeping it perfectly on our behalf, and he fulfills all of the promises of God by bringing all of these prophecies to completion in himself. Just over and over again, that's what this passage is reiterating, and it is so cool, isn't it? I love the Bible. But there's one other prophecy, there's one other prediction in this passage that's very easy to overlook because there's a lot happening. But I think that this prophecy might actually be the most consequential for us in this room right now. Look back up at verse 31. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Then look at verse 32. But... After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So do you see this is another prediction? This is what's going to happen? And there's really two wonderful promises here. First, what's this say? Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. His death on the cross was not the end of the story. Yes, he drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, to the very last drop, but death could not conquer him because there was more life left in Christ than there was death in death. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, and there was more fight left in him. Amen. And how do we know that's true? Because he came out of the tomb. Death is swallowed up in victory because Jesus came back from the dead. And he's alive even now. He's in heaven still. Death no longer has any hold on him. So death no longer has a hold on any of us. So that's the first promise that we see right there. Jesus says, I'm going to be raised from the dead. But then what's the second promise? It is what that means for the disciples. Look again at verse 32. After I am raised up. I will go before you to Galilee. What does that mean? What does that after mean? It means that after Christ's resurrection, things are going to be different. Oh, you guys did not hear me. After Christ's resurrection, things are going to be different. Amen. What's going to be different? Well, for the apostles, we have to read a little head in the story to see what happens. You go ahead to Matthew chapter 28, the end of the story. Jesus has been crucified. He has been laid in the tomb. Three days later, some of Jesus' female disciples come to the tomb, and they find it empty. And then they see the risen Lord Jesus standing right there in front of them in all of his glory and he tells them this is Matthew 28:10 do not be afraid go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me go and tell my brothers who's that the apostles these same ones who failed me these same ones who fled from me. These same brothers. Tell them to go to Galilee. 
and I'm going to meet them there. Now, if you're one of the disciples, what are you thinking? Why does he want to meet with us? Surely he remembers. It was only three days ago. But they go. They meet him there in Galilee, and and Matthew says they fall down on their faces and worship him. This is the risen king. And then Jesus does the most amazing thing. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't gloat over them. He doesn't revile them. He doesn't make them feel bad for what failures they were. I don't know what you think it would be like to stand in front of your God. But if you have trusted in Christ, he too will do what he does for them. This most amazing thing He doesn't condemn them. He commissions them. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How could there be? How could he condemn them? He was condemned for them. He can't punish them because he took the punishments. Because of his faithfulness, they are forgiven. And so they see him face to face and he doesn't condemn them. He commissions them. He sends them out. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, what? I am with you always to the end of the age. You were not always with me. You fled from me. But I was faithful where you failed. And so now you are forgiven. And from now on, I am going to be with you. And I've got a ministry for you to fulfill. All this week, I said it was a long week. It was long because we had a preaching conference here through the Simeon Trust workshop. We had about 60 pastors from New Mexico and Colorado and Arizona. Um, We all met together to receive instruction and and do some preaching exercises together and it was was awesome. And I'm, I'm so grateful for our church that we invest in this and that we resource this. Dave Helm was here. Some of you guys know Dave Helm. He's a friend of our church and it was so good. But, but this year, our workshop was focused on preaching through the book of Acts. And if you don't know what the book of Acts is, you should read it, because it's the sequel to the gospel. It's what happens with these apostles after Christ regathers them in Galilee and commissions them and sends them out. And guys, when you read through the book of Acts, it's the most incredible thing. Because it's these same brothers. It's these same guys. Jesus did not go find better prospects after he came back from the dead. No, he said, Peter, James, John, come here. What happens at the very beginning of the book of Acts is that Jesus pours out on his people his Holy Spirit. And he sends them out to go in fulfillment of the promises that he has made to them. And these guys, when they go out, you know what? They're not failures anymore. 
These same guys who, who never quite seemed to get it, all of a sudden they can stand up in front of a room and they can just expound how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. These same guys that, that couldn't pray with Jesus for one hour, they're just praying all the time and the whole rooms shake because of their fervency in prayer. These guys that were scared of soldiers with clubs and swords, all of a sudden they are standing up in front of judges and kings with all boldness, proclaiming the excellencies of the risen King Jesus, even though it would cost them imprisonment or torture or even their very lives, which they happily gave up for the sake of the gospel. They were not failures anymore. No, they weren't perfect. They still got it wrong. We know that from Acts and from the rest of the New Testament. Sometimes they still gave into their flesh. There was still that wrestle. But failure is not what defined their lives any longer. It was faithfulness. It was fulfillment. And why do I tell you that? Just so you can know what the book of Acts is about? Of course not. Church, their story is your story. Their story is your story. This passage that we've been studying this morning, it really holds up the mirror to our own failure, doesn't it? We all have committed treason. We all have, have prayed, not God's will, but my will be done. We all have failed. We have all given in to sin. That is true. But if you walk away from this passage only feeling like you're a failure, then you've missed it. And if you go home today just thinking, well, thank God for Jesus, because I'm never going to get it right. That's, that's not it either. No, what should we take away from this? Yes, we have failed. But where we have failed, Christ was faithful. And by his faithfulness, you are forgiven. But not only are you forgiven, you are actually able to fulfill God's calling on your life. You are able to walk in faithfulness the way that Jesus did. You can see the temptation coming, and by the help of Jesus' own Holy Spirit within you, you can stop, you can see it, and you can pray the way that Jesus prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That power is in you because of the Holy Spirit. Because of the Holy Spirit, you can obey Jesus' teaching. Do you believe that? You don't have to fail. And because of the Holy Spirit in you, you can go and make disciples and teach them to do the same thing, to obey Jesus' teaching. Brother and sister, you can define your whole life, no longer by your failure, that's all been nailed to the cross, but you can define your life by Christ and his faithfulness working through you and through him being a part of God fulfilling his purposes to the end of the earth. Isn't that good news? Don't you want that? But listen, all of you listen, the flesh is weak. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot do this in your flesh. You can only do this by walking in faith in Jesus Christ. So if you keep just trying in your flesh, keep working in your own effort, keep trying to muster up enough strength or whatever other worldly means you can think of, you are going to fail. 
And maybe some of you this morning need to realize that's why failure has defined your life. Because you're actually not trusting in Christ. You're trusting in your flesh. My friend, trusting in your flesh, trying to please God in your flesh, is like sitting down to take the test and starting with the wrong bubbles. You're going to get it wrong every time, no matter how right you think you are. But the gospel is that Jesus Christ has passed the test for you. He obeyed perfectly. He drank the cup. He fulfilled the scriptures. And he was raised from the dead. And everything is different. Let's pray. What a hope that we have, Lord Jesus. We confess to you that we are weak in our own flesh. And we confess to you that it is sinful when we try to work on our own to please you. Forgive us and show us what it means to walk by faith, to walk in reliance on your spirit and in the hope of Jesus who has fulfilled the law for us. God, I pray that you would bring some men and women here in this room to the point where they understand that they're trying to do it on their own and God, save them. And Lord, for all of us who have trusted in the faithful and finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, use us to fulfill your ministry until the day that you take us home or you come to be with us. That is our hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.